bonus episode. Hey everybody, welcome to the New World Pictures podcast. Bonus episode number 19. My name is Ryan. With me as always is Mark. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> yes, you're invited every time, Mark. Um, and Erica. Always second to Mark. <laughs> 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 and in my heart. Um, <laughs> um, uh, so, guys, this is a very special episode because when we started this podcast uh, nearly two years ago, um, I knew we were going to talk about every single uh, movie released by New World Pictures, but I was hoping that we'd also talk to some of the people behind the scenes who had actually made these movies, and we are starting to talk to those people. And with this episode, this is our first interview with somebody who actually made the movie. And we're talking to Harley Coakless, the director of Battle Truck, our episode from a couple weeks ago. Also, Black Moon Rising, our one of our famous Lost episodes. <laughs> lost, not to you, but to us. Because yes, we recorded yes. an episode for Black Moon Rising. We ended the episode and looked at each other and said, I'm not sure if we really... Hit yes. the mark on that let's, one. We need to give. We need to said. Let we need to try this again, but let's give it some time. We said our listeners deserve better. That's right, or worse. But That's they right. do not deserve. That's this. up to them. That's up to them they whether not, it's better or worse. They but do we not said deserve mediocre. We said not this one. We need to do it again to give the people what they really want. Correct. And that's what we're doing with this episode. Uh, I Give shout, the people what they want. We have <laughs> that's right. <laughs> they want Harley. We have to thank, of course, Barney Cokeless, his son, yes. who helped us get in touch with Harley. But Harley was so generous with his time and uh, in speaking with us and looking back over his many photos that he showed us, and he will show us uh, during the interview that we talked to him. He, he showed us pictures. Not only did we get. Not only did we get to interview, to chat with a director of two New World Pictures movies, he prepped, he brought pictures to he's, show us. Yeah. He's the That's best. amazing. He was so great. What an amazing guy to talk to. An incredible director. And I have to say, too, uh, let's not forget, Dream Demon. Stay, you know, yeah. you, you've, you've come for Battle Truck and Black Moon Rising. We talk about all of Harley's career, including Dream Demon, which is a movie that was just barely released uh, into some festivals and then has had a sort of uh, renaissance on home video. And there's a new Blu-ray, I believe it's from Arrow. And he goes through the whole process of that. And boy, do I want to see Dream Demon now. I know I've seen uh, most of his other films, but that's one I haven't seen. And I'm, I'm like, stay tuned for that. That is Quite the story. Harley's got a lot of great stories. That's another one of them. Stay tuned for it. I'm so glad that we got to talk to him. Um, we were so thrilled to do it. Um, yeah, so fortunate. That was it, yeah. was, it was really a highlight. It was yeah, really great. Absolutely. He's such a cool guy. Super charming. Mm -hmm. Just yeah. very interesting, funny. It was a dream come true. And you yeah, get to so, listen to it. So, And here it is. Yeah, enjoy. So here's us talking with Harley Coakless. Mark and I are from San Diego, and I know you didn't spend much time there, but where were you born <laughs> in San Diego? Oh, gosh. I, um, it was very, you could walk. For, I, about 10 years ago, my parents took me back to the house, which was in walking distance of the beach. And I'm, I just can't remember that part of San Diego. But okay. um, 
I feel very fond of San Diego. Like I'm, okay. I'm proud of being from San Diego and California. Yeah, yeah that's great. We are too. That's why we, we had to ask because, you know, knowing, you know, uh, somebody came from San Diego and became a director and made movies. It's like, wow, this is so exciting. And then you went to Chicago, which is where Eric and I met. Okay, I love Chicago. Yeah, Chicago is terrific. And you went to, to college there as well. And then you went to the UK and you've been there pretty much ever, ever, ever since, basically. Yeah, yeah, well, if you, you know, there's Australia and New Zealand and, right. and you know, what's the other one there? Uh, Lithuania, I spent a bit of time okay. in Lithuania. You know, you're on location. What can I mm -hmm. say? Right. Mm -hmm. The film set is the film set no matter where you go. But after you got out of film school in London, that's when you started working basically for the BBC? Is that how that Yeah, started? the BBC and ITV. Um, I did a, um, a documentary about um, <clears throat> the streets of Chicago. I made two films about Chicago. One is called Chicago Blues, which you can guess the subject. <laughs> and the other one is <laughs> Chicago Streets, which was uh, about... Uh, crime, the police, the fire department, reporters who are trying to cover the city. And um, uh, we, my, this, uh, my, my friend, Chris Mangues, who's one of, you know, only won four Oscars. I think he should be getting another one sometime soon. Um, <laughs> he's a brilliant uh, documentary handheld cameraman who can get a brilliant exposure uh, where there's practically no light at all. Um, and we, uh, the film was shown at the um, Art Institute in Chicago. And afterwards I got some, you know, we did a Q and A and one guy came up and said, well, your film is obviously, you know, set and lit and is a kind of Hollywood uh, fabrication. How do you, you know, see that that's a kind of street level journalistic documentary? And I said, we didn't have a light. <laughs> you, know, you know, basically, the only thing we will, to be fair, the only thing we did to intervene in a documentary situation is that we came in on a Saturday and we washed the light covers, the neon, the covers of the neon lights in the police station. And mm. that gave Chris about another stop or two. And that was the only thing we did, wash their lamps. <laughs> and uh, aside from that, it was um, reality happening in, in front. And um, no, it was uh, hair raising. We were at murders and fires and parades with Mayor Daley. And um, um, no, I'm, I'm very proud of that one. Yeah, oh. and so it, was it around this time that you got the idea for Battle Truck? Um, no, a couple of couple of years later, uh, I'd been making a few, uh, after documentaries, I moved on to some um, young people's films. And then I did a kind right. of a teen film. And then we got into the grownups. <laughs> and, <Right. laughs> and was Battletruck right. your venture into the grownup? Yeah, and I think it was um, coming to this, coming back to the States after spending many years, several years, certainly, uh, a number of years in London, that kind of opens your eyes to a fresh take and you only have to drive on an American highway to, you know, interact with these mammoth vehicles. Mm -hmm. And um, Battletruck largely happened because um, 
the BBC asked me to go to LA and, and do some interviews. And I had a, a kind of very interesting selection of interviews that I did while I was there. Um, one was Fritz Lang, because I'm a huge Fritz Lang fan. Wow. And it was a great honor to meet him and interview him. Yeah, that's and awesome. um, we also did Don Siegel. Uh, you know, I did all my, my hero. <laughs> that's yeah. right. And, and then, um, and one of the other places we went was uh, Roger's house. You know, I, I all mm -hmm. my friends, I got a number of people who worked for Roger. Tak Fujimoto shot several films for uh -huh. Roger. And um, so I went out to the house in the Pacific Palisades. And it's, I don't know whether you've been, but it's astonishing. You know, it has a, a epic view from the cliffs. We've, we've, uh, we've never been there with his permission. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the gate's not that high you can yeah, get it's not, yeah it's easy to climb it's yeah you know. <laughs> and so we were talking um and i said to him casually like one does when you are grabbing an opportunity mm -hmm. i said roger i think i have a, a idea that you might like and um i kind of gave him a kind of what they sometimes call this the elevator pitch Mm -hmm. Can you pitch a film in the time you take, it takes to get from one floor to another? Mm -hmm. And you happen to be in the same elevator as the executive in charge. That's your opportunity. And I was like an elevator pitch. And he looked off and said, I can see the poster. <laughs> that was an important thing for him. The first thing he said was, I can see yeah. the poster. 1994, after the oil wars, after the destruction of the cities. Battle truck. Good morning. My name is Colonel Stryker. Hey, wait a minute. You can't come in. Who's in charge here? Only one man dared oppose him. Hunter. How do I find this hunter? Up in the mountains somewhere. You'll never catch him. Watch me. He'll beat you because he's better. Over my dead body. Your time is over, old man. Not yet, kid. Battle Truck, a science fiction adventure of the near future. I tell you what, why don't you, I'll give you half and you raise the rest in Spain and uh, do it that way. It shouldn't cost more than a million dollars. And um, as it turns out, um, Roger was a little bit clever with his arithmetic in terms of whether he was actually <laughs> delivering, you know, 50%. In the end, we went to New Zealand uh, because right. he was recommending Spain, but Spain was super busy. And um, just fortuitously, this producer I knew, Lloyd Phillips, uh, and I shared the same agent in London. Oh, okay. okay. And so the agent put us together and then Lloyd made some phone calls and it was a time when the, as they still are, the New Zealand government has incentives. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're one of the major, besides it being an extraordinarily gifted group of people making films, it's not a very big population. They are so gifted in, the, in acting and writing mm -hmm. and, um, and making films. I mean, as Lord of the Rings certainly showed the world. And um, so, it, they, they had an incentive and I was happy to take it because they, both the two producers were New Zealanders. And um, 
and um, we started. And um, there was a couple of possibilities as cameraman, but the man that I would like next to me when you're trying to get a lot done in a short time is Chris Menges because right. he, he's brilliant. And, and you brought uh, him, you brought him in after the initial DP didn't get along with the crew, correct? Oh, where does this gossip come from? <laughs> you know, there, there some some people have the wrong attitude. Okay. And it was, you know, I'm not naming names, but it was actually somebody I had worked with in the states. Okay. And we got along fine, but there was just circumstances it didn't work out and then i would say the best thing that rob and lloyd uh, rob whitehouse and lloyd phillips the two new zealand producers did was they arranged for chris to come in but chris that was his summer to have the kids okay so like three kids and they all came out and um uh it was Amazing. And the interesting thing was because of the incentive, there was a lot of productions going on in New Zealand and the crews that were available to us, a low budget independent film, um, were young crew, mm -hmm. maybe less experienced than the older crew with a lot of credits to their name. And they were snapped up by the studio productions that were going there because they wanted the incentive too. Sure. And, um, but as it happens in a funny kind of way, we backed into a great gift because we had all these young New Zealand uh, film crews who have gone on to be the megastars, you know, of their film industry, like Lee Tomahori. Mm -hmm. uh, Lee right. Tomahori Boom operator. Brilliant director, wonderful <clears throat> filmmaker. And he was a boom swinger. Right. So had Lee early in his career swinging the boom. And, um, <laughs> you know, they, they, the people we had, you know, had the right idea. Now we, and the, the I mean, you know, the guys in the art department, we were building this community, you know, Clearwater. Right. And we didn't have much money. And so what happened? Now, I don't know who's listening to this, but the crew <laughs> went off with a, with a chainsaw. And sometimes they would find in these, kind of sheep stations, which cover thousands of square miles, huge places, maybe not thousands of square miles, but large. And there would sometimes be these old aging shacks. So they whipped out the chainsaw, cut through the foundations, which were only kind of two by four supporting mm -hmm. it, threw it on the back of a pickup truck. And we started building our community, basically wow. what we could find on the side of the road. Wow. We, we knew we were, we were kind of working on the tips of our fingers. Yeah. And I thought that was, it made it an, a, a joyous experience. It was a wonderful cast, great people. And um, we were really at the edge of things. I, I don't you know, there's some amazing helicopter shots mm -hmm. in the film. And hang on a minute, I have some photographs. So we had instances where you can see oh, wow. the helicopters in the wow. air wow. and it's chasing, chasing the battle truck. What a great <laughs> shot. That's incredible. You might say, where's the cameraman? Well, if you look closely. Oh my gosh. <laughs> strapped to this, a, a plank of wood strapped to the skids underneath the helicopter. Wow. wow. So, and here is this astonishing 
multi-Oscar winning cinematographer, you know, strapped underneath. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's incredible. That is... He loved it. Really? Oh, I would think that, that is... he would be terrified. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. Is, that is terrifying. I have to say the HR professional in me is terrified looking at that, <laughs> on, you know, yeah. thinking from, from an HR looking yeah, at the employee perspective. I'm horrified. Yeah, you don't. <laughs> You don't send that yeah, to an insurance no, company. Years ago. That's it. <laughs> yeah, we can't send that to the insurance company. That's it. Needless to say, I was inside. In the <laughs> I, was, I, was yeah. in the, I stayed with the pilot. <laughs> Smart move. Yeah. That's a great shot, though. How and what? How how exciting too for him and you know to have that he, experience he and that it. story to tell you know going forward. Be better, That's better great. than. Any roller coaster ride you could imagine. I you bet. bet. You bet. Yeah. Now, just to go back, because you, you've now cleared like several of my questions, but to go back real quickly, when you talked to Roger Corman about this idea, what was it like in your mind at all that because Roger had, had produced uh, Death Race 2000 that this might be an idea he's interested in? Or was this just the, 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 the idea that was the most top of mind for you at that point in time? I just felt that Roger would be the natural home. I mean, I had already known, I mean, there are friends of mine from film school had already worked for Roger. And I, by this time, had done second unit on Empire Strikes Back. Right. So Gary Kurtz, who made several films for Roger, you know, and uh, gave me a, a lot of advice in terms of way and so he comes from a low budget break he came because we lost larry gary mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh wonderful human being and um he gave me some very good advice he says you won't have enough time you won't be working with the most experienced of crews but what you need to do is to if you're going to run dialogue shots, if you want to pick up like two or three pages of dialogue, do it as one setup, do it as a moving master, you know, get it all done. You don't worry about coverage. It's only dialogue only. And then, you know, <laughs> you move on to the scenes that require a lot of setup. Attention. Yeah. Because when impossible things are happening, you're, you're making something that's impossible or dangerous happen. And mm -hmm. you obviously have to protect your crew and cast. So you design a sequence of, of shots, each one of which is safe to do, but implies a dangerous situation. Mm -hmm. So you make sure you're there when the huge explosion goes off. But it right. appears like they just stepped out of frame and wham. Well, that's why we have editors. You take out the weight. <laughs> That yeah. and they step out of frame and the whole thing blows up <laughs> yeah uh it, it, you have the safe shots and then you have the shots where your dp is like strapped to the underside of your helicopter as well <laughs> <laughs> um renting so helicopters with gimbal joints and you know and can swivel around and move the the camera around that's probably our whole budget right, right. exactly right yeah so. um so when you had you had half the funding from Roger, at least he had promised half the funding, whether or not he felt he didn't really come through with it, but he, he had promised it. 
it, it then was it a took... percentage. He gave us a percentage. It wasn't fifty percent. It's another number, <laughs> right? And um, which had to be fun to find that out while you're in midst production. <laughs> but um, but like when 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 you found the other, which took the other half of the funding, which took a few years. Did that at that point? Once you got the other funding, did it sort of like just come together very quickly after that point, or did yeah, it still? Yeah, no, there wasn't a long period of time between that. Basically, as soon as uh, the two New Zealand producers came on board, the the uh, the grants available during this period of time um, were immediate. So then we could start crewing and casting and and continuing work on the script because the script kept on changing right as usual right and and so when it comes to casting now you originally wanted to cast ed harris in the role of hunter yes this was this was the kind of only conflict i really had with roger and roger you know he has the stick of basically wants what he wants and if he doesn't get what he wants he doesn't have to give you the money and basically this really it still hurts <laughs> i really would have loved that um and you know michael's michael's great i love yeah yeah michael sure did a great job you know but there was just something there's more gravitas mm -hmm. in ed harris mm -hmm. what happened was roger sent one of his assistants to the to the Santa Monica High School. <laughs> and at playtime, when they were all in the, in the kind of the, the grounds of the high school, he would have this, these people go up to, you know, a young person, maybe 15, 16, and show them two photographs. Do you want to see a movie with this guy in it? Or want to see a movie with that guy in it? Well, Michael's younger, you know, mm -hmm. and the girls tell me that he's, cuter than Ed, you know, <laughs> but, um, and so basically I came back and it was a fait accompli, yeah. you know, I could stamp my feet and, you know, walk away, uh, but I wouldn't get to make my film. So okay. you, you accommodate the eventuality. Right. It's a, right. Uh, it's a very select focus group that he's choosing there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think those kids knew what their cavalier random reaction to a couple of photographs, the consequence, what that was to a whole bunch of people. He made a lot of decisions based on going and taking a survey of high school students, including like titles and things like that. He would often go to the high schools to see what the young kids were up to. Um, and, and I mean, stemming back even to his Poe films, which he made because at the time it was a standard for kids to read that in high school. They thought that might be something that the kids would enjoy seeing so and they were uh, you know public domain so that was also another factor as well but um so he's always kind of looked after those high school kids and made sure he, well, made, he made the right to, choices to, for him to give him his due will jump to the other end of the process so that was just the you know the initiation of the project mm -hmm. let's talk about the end of the project when we were screening it on on hollywood boulevard at the, to test the audience. And we're coming out of the screening, which went very well. And he tears off a piece of paper from his notepad, hands it to me. And I said, what's this? And he says, three lines where there was an inappropriate audience reaction. You should take those three lines out. Wow. And I was like, wow. what? 
<laughs> audience reaction. Huh. huh. And, you know, for, you know, maybe it's a moment where you want people to be sad and, you know, the audience wasn't sad because they found it funny. I don't know what exactly it was at this point in time, right. but in the cutting room, you know, we took the three offending lines out of those scenes and um, he was right. Huh. Really? Wow. wow. So they played better in some subtle way. Huh. So the audience was right, not Roger. Roger noticed the audience get a little squirmy. And so he said, no, no, that's not what you want. We wow, need to do this. You know, they really were, insightful of him. Here, you're a root for what's going on. So really, well, working really with Roger. shows his attention to detail, like and his attention to detail and his attention to the craft of it, like really watching the audience, understanding like the, the timing, the tempo, the, uh, the emotion that's trying to be achieved. I, that, that's really, it's amazing to hear that story. Um, I, I work in <laughs> advertising, so we're always trying to cut things or get the timing just right. So um, it's, that's, uh, it, that's really a, a fascinating story. Mm. Well, he well, definitely was listening to the audience, whether or not he's asking them about casting decisions or editing decisions. <laughs> That's actually true. I didn't put those two things that but he was asking the audience in both places. You're yeah. Absolutely right, right. Speaking of um, having to make uh, decisions on the set, uh, you had a big action sequence that was actually supposed to be in the middle of Battle Truck that you had to take out. Uh, and it ends up becoming when Hunter just finds the uh, rocket launcher uh, back at his broken down uh, house to salvage that. Was that was a rewrite. Yes. A rewrite yeah. that, as you said, saved us about a week and a considerable considerable amount of money that we didn't have. Was that how far along were you guys on that in that sequence? Like, had you were you fairly had you pretty much were you somewhat ready to go, or were you uh, like did you have things built for that sequence, or or were you uh, was that just something that you were looking like you were going to have to get to at some point and and to eliminate it saved you. Uh, all the no, prep work and everything. It, uh, we, we didn't not build anything. Basically, the set was the set. Mm -hmm. And really, when you're, the time it takes is because, like I say, if you don't want anybody to get hurt, you take three shots to do one action because to do the action in one shot that involves shooting someone, you know, someone's going to get hurt or fall off a horse. Mm -hmm. So it takes um, longer to shoot these battle scenes and, uh, and anything that has some grandeur or scale because you're always, you know, you'll storyboard it and then you, that's what gives you the, the shape of the story and visual storytelling, but you need the time because you've right. got to get all the setups. And yeah. um, the weather out there, because we it was the summer here, but it was the winter there, and um, we'd arrive at this valley, which, you know, when I was when we were first there, um, it was scattered with a lot of green carrots, and the green <laughs> carrots were uh, poisoned to try to attract the rabbits because they had a plague of rabbits. And, <laughs> oh and this was, uh, Clearwater was actually a beautiful little uh, orchid or orchard uh, on, on, a, on a road that it was a kind of like 
horse path or carriage, or very old, maybe a 19th century road that went from one settlement as it was to another. And so we, we took that location and we built our fort and the houses that we did, like sometimes a, a shack would arrive on the back of a truck that the guys had won from, you know, some, some uh, ranch somewhere. And we put it all together. And um, we'd arrived to start shooting in, you know, before the sun was up and the ground was, uh, you, you could hit it with a hammer. It was hard as granite. And as over the course of the day, by the time you were serving lunch to the crew, uh, you know, the, the ground was a swamp of mud, you know, thick, mm. viscous mud, you know, and, you know, so you're sloshing through the, 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 the mud and all the kind of hills and, 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 and kind of uh, valleys that you kind of slosh through. But by the end of the day, you might have, uh, you know, when the sun goes down or you're not shooting exteriors, you're in, in the interiors because you can light those and you come out and it's, you know, zero degrees and all that kind of molten mud is now frozen solid hard as granite again. So hmm. that was like the, the day, the orchestration of the day, each day you'd come when it was freezing and it would get hot and then you leave when it's freezing, so. Wow. Was, did you find similar situation when you're shooting, like later on when you're shooting like Hercules and Xena in New, in New Zealand, was it still the same kind of situation in terms of the weather? Um, Hercules and Xena was largely studio based. Okay. We didn't do that much. I mean, there are some things where we went around like, you know, with Lucy Liu when she was playing her character, you know, you know, we do, yeah, it was, uh, it wasn't the same experience. Right. Cause this you know, battle truck is obviously more exterior based. Um, yeah. And can, to go back to that picture of Chris Mengus in a helicopter, did you also use that same setup? The pictures you showed us, your shooting battle truck, but when you had Hunter on the motorcycle, which is not Michael Beck, we, it's, <laughs> that is, you're doing all those motorcycle shots, but was that also shot like when, from behind uh, Hunter as he's like driving through uh, the, the wastelands, if you will, was that also shot on helicopter or was that? You know, I mean, shot by shot, I'm not entirely sure, you know, if we, had the helicopter, I, we would have used the helicopter. So <laughs> sure. a lot of times, you know, you just have a you know tracking vehicle, and you know you're right behind them, and okay. they're kicking off the dust. Um, and so you're on the, the camera vehicle, and you're just eating the dust and getting the best shot you can. Top of the rocket launcher. Your wounds are. Hurry up! It's coming. Get that other rocket. From the success of Battle Truck, it sort of like led you down a path of, of shooting a lot of sort of action and genre movies. Was that like where you sort of saw your career going? Was this like, uh, you know, this is what you, where you were wanting to go? Um, 
you know, the kind of films I made were the kind of films I liked watching. And so it was simple. And, and <clears throat> I certainly would have liked to have gotten the kind of resources to do a kind of epic uh, science fiction fantasy. But, you know, when they asked me to take over Second Unit and Empire Strike Backs, I ha had a ch chance to do a lot of that. Mm -hmm. You know, I wasn't in the second unit that went to Norway. This way, we were back to at L3 Studios, and um, and uh, if um, it was a very sad story, I, I was looking for kind of clips, uh, offcuts of a film that I did, you know, which was a kind of young adult film, and I was went to L3 to look at you know some cans of film. And then I popped in um, to uh, see a number of friends of mine who were working on the second unit. Chris Mangues was on it. And then there was a lighting ca a camera operator and, you know, and a focus puller, people that had worked on, on this um, teen film that I did called That Summer. And they were all very sad because, um, the guy who was directing Second Unit had died the day before. Uh, strange from a, what they call a fulminating dose of meningitis. I mean, he came mm. in oh, no. the studio at eight o'clock in the morning and, and the, the nurse saw him and he was running a, a very high fever as she sent him to the hospital. And then by um, three o'clock that afternoon, he was dead. Oh, wow. So, um, so I got on the set and they, they have a huge pile, they had a, a huge workload. And I went to see my friends to see how they were. So there's all, and I, I knew the, the other guy and I was you know, shocked to hear that he died so suddenly. And um, they said, listen, we don't know who's gonna take over. Why don't you take over? And I said, well, let me, I don't know. I can't just, I, who should I talk to? And so they got the producer down and he said, um, when can you start? I said, when do you need me? And he said, tomorrow. And so <laughs> that, that's as fast as it happened. And um, so I, I did second unit for four months. And I only had to leave because I was going to New Zealand to shoot Battle Truck. Right. You know, and Gary Kurtz, like I said, who I, I met, you know, had given me lots of good advice about how to get through it when you have a very low budget. And do you remember what you worked on on Empire Strikes Back? Like the stuff that you shot? Oh gosh. Um, basically when you're inside um, the Millennium Falcon, any shot that has a window equals blue screen. Right. Second unit does. Oh, okay. So, so Kirshner would come in and he would stage because he was wonderful at the shtick and the, the comic stuff. And so he would block it and shoot uh, a wide shot, kind of looking in so you didn't see any windows. And then basically he would move on to, they had five sets working, and he would work on to another set. You know, they, they were building, they were striking, and then there was a couple that he, he would go on and do what he was doing. And then I would take over and, um, and do the blue screen and, um, anything else that required, you know, stunts, you know, and, wow. um, 
And you said that you worked on that for four months and you really left because of Battle Truck. Was there, were you conflicted about that? Were you thinking, how could I maybe push out Battle Truck a little bit so I could spend (laughs) a little more time on this? Um, Sure. I mean, it's, it would, you know, I wouldn't walk away from something if it was going to really land them in a difficult situation, but we'd really caught up in all the, all the kind of, backlog that had built up over the, the, the time we, we, we went through it, a, a lot of stuff, um, you know, and with blue screen, you know, if you, if you see the tip of a wing through the window of the X-wing, and that wing is, let's say, I don't know, three, four feet away from the nose of the actor, everything that you see from the actor's face and, or the helmet shape, and the wingtip has to be sharp in focus because mm-hmm. for blue screen, you need a sharp line. Yeah. And otherwise it, it's fuzzy and it kind of moves around and draws attention to the fact that it's a special effect, mm, which right. you never want to do it. You want the audience to believe they're seeing what's happening. So no, I, um, it's a fun thing to do. And, um, but when suddenly the guys in New Zealand had put the finance together and they said, can you be here next week? I said, I think so. And, and then I had to say <laughs> goodbye to George and, uh, and the rest of the crew and um, get on the plane for New Zealand. Wow. So you're shooting second unit for Irvin Kirshner who directed a movie written by John Carpenter called The Eyes of Laura Mars. And then your next project was also originally written by John Carpenter, uh, Black Moon Rising. Uh, And that's the next movie you make. Ryland Enterprises. Chairman of the board, Edward Ryland. His business, transportation. Illegal transportation. The last time someone took something from him, they turned up dead. But Mr. Ryland just made a big mistake. He took something from this man, Sam Quint. John Carpenter, Black Moon, Rising. Still for New World, but an entirely different regime at that point. Roger had sold the company, and Robert Remy was now uh, in charge of New World Pictures. I, I know him as Bob Remy. I always, I always think of him as Bob Remy. Okay. Um, <laughs> lovely guy, really. I mean, he's a, 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 a nice, nice man. Yeah, yes, we've, we've only been in his house for without his permission as well. So, you know, <laughs> um, now how did how did Black Moon Rising come about? How did that project come together? I had been given the script by the two producers that I had done that summer for in London. I had the script, but it was, it was written for by John Carpenter and 
um, I need to I needed to get that cleared. Now uh, I knew uh, the one of the a producer called Doug Curtis, right? Who I think had done a number of pictures for for New World, and <clears throat> Doug knew John, and he said, "Let's uh, let's have a meeting with John and let's talk this all over." And the two British producers. I don't know whether they still had it under option or not, but it ended up with, it, it's in the end, it's John's copyright. So we had a lunch at um, the Sportsman, was that a, is that a? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Sportsman's, Sportsman's Lodge. That's right, the Sportsman mm -hmm. Lodge. And uh, we had a meeting there and um, John was very accommodating. You guys put it together, you know, I'll expect to be remunerated and, uh, and good luck. It was that easy. It's just and that simple. <laughs> did Absolutely. he have? That's the guy who wrote it. Whether you could finish, you know, shoot the movie, and he didn't stand in the way because he was going to get paid. So it was um, simple. And he didn't have any direction that he wanted to provide. He was more, "Hey, this is you got this. Just give give me my check, and uh, we're good." John doesn't doesn't stop. You know, so he had, you know, three other movies that he was going to write and, you know, do the music for. And, um, you know, he's a force of nature. Um, no, uh, Doug, Doug Curtis, who was the producer, was also the second unit on that one as well. Uh, on Black Moon Rising. Yeah. yeah. Doug did some of that. He's a, a director in his own right. He did like, I think, was it The Sleeping Car Murder? He did, he did, did a number of movies in, the, in various genres. So yeah, when you're when you're trying to get an ambitious vision on the screen, when you're, you know, tightening your belt, uh, yeah, all hands to the pump. <laughs> um, was it a similar experience working on a Black Moon Rising as Battle Truck? Was this like a, a similar, even though the, the the people in charge were different, was it, it still feel like kind of a similar kind of production? Probably not. They didn't take uh, a percentage of the funding away from you in midstream, but um. <laughs> probably less poison carrots in Black Moon Rising. <laughs> well, you know, you're shooting in L.A., you know, in the you know, home of the movies, you know, Hollywood. So right. uh, that was great. And we, we had we had a wonderful cast. And besides the astonishing and brilliant Tommy Lee Jones. Right. You know, mm -hmm. Robert Vaughn, yeah, Jekyll. Yeah. I mean, these are I want you know think of back to one of my heroes, you know, Fritz Lang, and and you know who worked with a number of these people, and uh, and uh, leaving yeah. um, from fear. You know, William Sanderson. Um, there's you know some lovely lovely actors here from that great Hollywood tradition. So. No, that came together and you can get everything you need and everyone you need in LA. LA is based on servicing the, the film business and it's geared up and it's professional and, uh, you know, it, it, the wheels run, you know, it's, uh, it's very well organized. So no, it was, uh, you know, the, the thing about Black Moon, it was, working with those wonderful actors. Tommy right. Lee was enormous fun. You know, he he could be trouble because he demanded that it, 
he didn't want to be hurried. You know, if he wanted to do something and he had to be this professional thief, he wanted enough time to master the props so it looked like he was this professional thief who's highly, you know, skilled at manipulating things in order to get into buildings that don't want to be gotten into. So, and he was also like uh, sort of he he worked on his own dialogue too, right? To try to make it more his style. Yeah, but you know he tells the story, and I'm sure it's true of uh, when he did the fugitive, <clears throat> and the fugitive when he you know has this confrontation with Harrison Ford, and he got like three pages of dialogue down to three lines. I didn't kill my wife. I don't care. Who do you think wrote that scene? <laughs> right, right. That's that, that was Tommy Lee dialogue. <laughs> and then the, wow. uh, the other thing in, <clears throat> that I love about that film when he talks about, you know, chasing up every hen house, kennel, you know, all that wonderful list of unlikely yeah. places where, you know, the doctor who's on the run might be hiding. He wants his team of policemen to search. What I want out of each and every one of you is a hard target search of every gas station, residence, warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or doghouse in that area. Checkpoints go up to 15 miles. Your fugitive's name is Dr. Richard Kimball. Tommy is just a wonderful guy to work with. Now, I just, I'm curious, do you know where the Black Moon car is right now? Is it in your garage or is it? <laughs> I don't know whether we didn't buy it. We just used it. It right. was designed in Montreal at the um, technical college up there. And I'm pretty sure they got it back. Okay. <laughs> pretty sure. Pretty sure. Is it? Yeah, well, it was kind of in one piece when we finished it, you know. <laughs> Mostly. <laughs> it had multiple replacement windscreens and things like that. <laughs> right. And of course, the famous sequence where the car like goes from one building to another, which are two buildings that are in Long Beach. Um, those were actually done mostly by miniature, where you sort of have them shooting from one one to the other. So uh, yeah, the several techniques you know that you employ. So it's not one technique; it's several techniques, so that each point of view is generated and looks believable. Yeah. And um, you know, I don't think the guys from uh, Fast and Furious seven or eight or nine, whichever one it was, who repeated that stunt. I don't <laughs> think with all their millions, I don't know whether they, in a sense, got it any better than we did. But yeah. they did borrow <laughs> our, our, our scene. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's quite an influence, Black Moon Rising. It had quite an influence. Um, it also had music from Lalo Schifrin, which is had to be awesome to also work with him as well. Well, yeah, I only I didn't spend much time with Lalo, but um, you know he, uh, you know he's um, he's a pro. Yeah. You know, again, you know he's he can. I don't know whether it was all original work or whether he had kind of taken some. You know, I don't know how many times do you have to write the chase. You know, I felt <laughs> that sometimes I'd heard that some of the music before, but it it was classical chase music, so. Why wouldn't I have heard it before? Right, right. So, yeah, Lalo was again one of these Hollywood, you know, 
not icons, but certainly, you know, a kind of a major talent that spent his career working in that town. Yeah. But that was, yeah. you know, working in LA is different. You know, it's a doubt. That was a period where you probably were in LA for a little bit because you go from Black Moon Rising right into Malone right after that. Like they're, they're pretty, were they just sort of one production into the other? Because they're pretty close to, together in terms of the release date. Yes, what happened was, you know, the producer of Malone, his wife had seen Black Moon Rising and basically told the producer that this is the guy you want to direct it. So he got me in and, um, you know, gave me the script, which needed a little work. So we had a number of writers put their hands on it. And um, yeah, no, it, and then we kind of rolled right into it and, you know. What are you gonna tell the company? Goodbye. Nobody just walks away. Watch me. He's looking for a second chance. Great car. It's older than me. You got socks older than you. And that's his first mistake. What happened to this town? Discovered toxic waste? Uh, this rich guy Delaney moved in. Trying to buy up everything. Thomas Jefferson said the tree of freedom must be nourished from time to time with blood. Interesting man. You want me to take care of him? Well, Joe's the only thing I've got. After I'm gone, the lady's gonna come down on you harder than ever. He's just a landmark. He's playing God in this valley. I, I dedicate my body, my brain, and my soul to our sacred covenant. Put it down. All right, the arena has been contained. Playing field defined. So what are you gonna do, Malone? Shoot me? I came to kill you. I know. You shouldn't be fighting me, Richard. We should be on the same side. We're so much alike. I'm afraid you're right. Reynolds, Lauren Hutton, and Cliff Robertson. Malone. A very different kind of process, you know, but because uh, we shot that up in um, in Canada. Oh, okay, okay. Near uh, just north of Vancouver, up in the kind of the the hills, and where you know, if you drove out to the location, and you know, you had to go through these twisty turns, you would pass one snowy mountain, snow-capped mountain in front of a mirrored lake, kind of astonishing vista. You uh -huh. go about five miles, turn a corner, and there's another one. And right. so Canada as a, as a location is just amazing, amazing. Mm -hmm. And another country that offers incentives. So always chasing those incentives. <laughs> well, they wouldn't be good producers if they didn't. They could have <laughs> opportunity they could have. <laughs> but, That's right. But the um, Leo Fuchs uh, had the rights to that script, Malone. And um, like I said, it was the fact that his wife saw Black Moon Rising that, you know, suddenly I got a phone call from Leo. 
Now, wow. were you concerned at all with in shooting Malone that uh, Burt Reynolds would try to pick a fight with you like he did with Dick Richards on, in Heat? Well, I didn't know that that happened, but <laughs> Burt's a very interesting customer. And you, ha you have to find a way around any difficulties because you don't want anything to happen that holds up production. So if he wants certain things to be done a certain way, you know, and it's, it's, um, it has to do, I mean, certain, you know, things are, you could say are, the, here's the movie star with his vanity and he wants things done because the, he wants to present himself to his audience, which he feels a responsibility to. And, and um, like, he rejected a stuntman who was to play him when he had to kind of climb up the side of a building. And he said, no, no, we can't use that guy. His bum is too big. And um, <laughs> my, my fans know what my ass looks like. <laughs> and I said, okay, you know, <laughs> let's get somebody you like. Yeah. That's a great I guess, story. And, and I guess he had, maybe he had shown it in uh, Playgirl, I guess. So that, <laughs> everybody was wearing jeans. So yeah, it good. feels like, yeah, it feels still <laughs> it feels like a stretch, but you know, <laughs> I'm trying to. <laughs> um, and then after that, you do uh, Dream Demon, which is something that you also co-wrote. To sleep, perchance to dream. But she could never sleep. She was afraid to sleep. Still, the dreams haunted her, terrified her. This was our last known address. They uh, died here. Two young women who share a shattering reality, but quite different nightmares. Who lived here before you? Hello, dog mate. <laughs> I think I'm from here. Just have to give me what I want. One on the brink of marriage. The other trapped in the deadly shadow of the past. Uh -oh. A dream from which there is no escape. But if I'm still asleep and this is a dream, then for God's sake, wake me up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I have the pleasure. Leave me alone. Diane! There's this little girl here. I, I don't know if she's real or not. I don't know if she's dead or not. Two women. Diana! At the mercy of the demon in their dreams. How did that uh, come about? Dream demon. Um, I was sitting in a restaurant bar on, um, oh gosh, what's the street is that? <clears throat> a nice street somewhere in, in LA. <laughs> It'll come to me. Not formal, uh, from, not fuller 10, anyway, it's. And um, a couple of guys I knew from London uh, who ran a company called Palace Pictures, uh, uh, Steve Woolley and, uh, and, and Nick, um, can't remember, remember his last name. They came in and we were, I was having a dream with Desmond Nakano, who is a screenwriter who actually 
did a polish on Black Moon Rising. And um, mm -hmm. uh, so they came over and um, Steve says, I just lost my director because his wife is too far into pregnancy for her to fly to London. So he had to back out of the production. Are you available? And I said, well, I just finished something. Um, but uh, let me read the script. It all begins there. And as it happened, um, you know, that was uh, Dream Demon. And we kind of did a very interesting kind of workshop way of, we took the script and we moved it forward. And what I did is I worked with John Bolton, who is a kind of stellar comic book artist, who's really a, a fine, fine painter and who, who does like the covers of books and covers of comic books, as well as doing the, the uh, you know, in, inside of the book sometimes. And John and I basically worked through the storyboards because he was, I call him the fastest pencil in the world, in the West. And we'd, we'd have this scene from the script and we'd kind of just pre-associate and describe how it could maybe be a little better. And we would describe what would happen. And basically by the time we finished describing it, John would take his notepad, turn it over and said, you mean, how about like this? And while we were talking, his pencil was working and it was all worked out. So that was great. And that was, that's a very interesting way to work. Start with the storyboards and then find the script. <laughs> um, and um, we put together this wonderful cast, uh, you know, Tim and uh, Jimmy and, uh, and, and <clears throat> actresses who were very or young and early. Kathleen Wilhoit, <clears throat> Will I guess. Kathleen, you know, she, she got off the plane and I, we started talking about the character and she said, don't worry, Harley, I got American wacky all locked up. <laughs> Which she did. Um, and uh, no, Kathleen is, um, and now seeing it all, all these years later, she shines. What happened was um, we finished the film and doing a, because of a series of circumstances, financial, which had nothing to do with the film, Palace Picture, and every other financing element. This was like in the 80s. You remember the crash in the 80s? Mm -hmm. Every element went out of business. Mm. And the film disappeared. And 30 years later, I mean, off and on, I would make inquiries, but nobody seemed to know anything. And the two producers didn't know what happened. And they said, we had this guy and he was supposed to look after it and we don't know. And they're on another different movie. Mm -hmm. And um, so no one cared but me. <laughs> and so I, I, the years would go by and occasionally I would talk to somebody, you know, do you have any idea where I'd find it? And he says, so I had this random phone call and I don't remember who it was who gave me this wonderful piece of advice. He said, because of the digitizing revolution, labs are going out of business. And as they close, very often they're faced with the task of getting rid of what's in their archives. Mm. And he said, there are a number of the, the three or four labs, you know, still remaining. 
you know, Technicolor, Rank, Pinewood, and a couple of others. And he said the big ones are aggregating all the archives of the labs that are going out of business. And he said, where, so I said, well, where do I start? And he said, why don't you start at the, the top? You know, the biggest lab is Technicolor. So I called Technicolor and I said, I'm looking for, they don't call it negative anymore. They call it preprint elements. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, <laughs> because it's not, you know, it's not print anymore. It's all gonna right. be a digital right. file. D digitized, yeah. Yeah, and um, so I said, Deb, I'm looking, it's called uh, Dream Demon. And he said, I could hear the typewriter. He said, um, yeah, we have it. And I said, I, this is after years of looking. Wow. And my jaw wow. hit the table and I said, well, what's there? And he said, ah, ten, ten, ten. well, we have 35 cans. That should be everything. Wow. As wow. it turns out, they were missing one can, wow. which, was, which was the picture for the trailer. Ah. But they had the negative for the trailer. And actually, we rebuilt the trailer. Wow. Anyway, so... Um, and he said, and there's a small um, issue of uh, 10,000 pound storage trees. And I said, so <laughs> <laughs> this is not, I said, I don't own this. It turns out the people who owned it was the British Film Institute because the people who had, had made it for, which was something called British Screen was one of the companies that went out of business in the 1980 crash. Mm. So, I arranged for all the cans to move from the Technicolor archive to the BBC, you know, the well, BFI, British Film Institute archives. And for this, I suddenly became the donor as if I owned it. So I suddenly became the donor to the, to the BFI and they gave me a grant which was part of something called Unlocking Film Heritage. They had this grant going so that I could afford to digitize it and then to go in the cutting room and recut the ending to make a few other changes and maybe increase the color saturation here and there. So we did that. And, and what was interesting was, what well, was fun, was it had a second life in the film festival circuit. Mm -hmm. So the, the film, the first time it went to Fantasporto and Porto in Portugal, and it went to Sitges in Spain, and it went to, to IFF in Brussels, and it you know, went to all the classic horror film festivals 30 years ago. Right, right. And we made the changes and it was digitized and it looked even better than before, high res, you know. Um, and so we did the circuit again which was wow. great fun. That is awesome. Um, wow, that's incredible. What an amazing story. Available in uh, the local DVD store. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, that's I right. Definitely it. pick that up. Oh, what's that? I said I recommend it. Yes, it's yes. Tim Spall is astonishing and, the, and Gemma Redgrave, you know, from the Redgrave clan, this was the first thing she did out of acting school. And Kathleen is Kathleen. She's a force of nature, and I love her. That's uh, well. That's awesome. Yeah, definitely get that. You can also get Battle Truck. You can all uh, as well on DVD. You can get uh, Black Moon Rising as well. Harley, this has been an absolute thrill for us. We we are so 
so happy that you uh, put some time to aside for us to be able to talk with you. This was absolutely amazing. Such Thank you treat. so much. Yeah, an incredible um, treat for us. Thank and, you. And just an amazing <laughs> career that's still ongoing, right? Are you what, what are you working on right now? Um, well, I'm working with um, a writer called Peter Milligan, whose background uh -huh. is comic books. Comic books, yeah. Uh -huh. well, but Peter and I have done two films together. Uh, one was based on a, a book called An Angel for May, and the other one was um, Pilgrim, mm -hmm. which is we didn't talk about. No, no, we didn't. Very close to my heart with Ray Liotta, and we made it in Mexico, and it's, um, I think it's quite a magical film, and I recommend everyone who hasn't seen Pilgrim. It's also, there's another title for it. Um, Oh, I'm blank on it. It's, it's gone out at another title besides Pilgrim. Um, and he's looking. It looks like you're looking. I, I was. I was going to look it up. I was going to look it up. <laughs> <laughs> but but continue, please continue. Anyway, so yeah, that's available now at your local video store, and um, if video stores still exist, but you can <laughs> download it or you can whatever which way you can. Yeah, you can but still order um, them online for sure. Oh, Inferno is the other title. Inferno. Inferno. I think I saw this years ago under that title. That's what I think. I, well, it I, actually should be called Infierno because a very important scene takes place in a strip club in, in Mexico called Infierno, which means mm -hmm. Inferno in, in, in Spanish. Right. Uh, yeah, because I, I remember Gloria Rubin and as well, who... Uh, it was 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 from ER, I believe, right? So, mm -hmm. um, so her and Ray Liotta. So I remember this. Uh, it's been a while. I, I'm definitely going to give it a rewatch. Um, Ray, Ray is when he's dealing with his memory and the flashbacks that he's having, and he's not sure who he is because he woke up in the middle of the desert, and um, you know, and he's finding things in his pocket like multiple driver's license and a and a tight roll of hundred dollar bills, the way the mafia tend to do, apparently. And um, Ray's trying to figure out who he is. There's, he's such an amazing actor. I have been so lucky to work with some of the most amazing actors, and especially my my lead, the leading men who've worked, and the leading women. I'm not discounting. <laughs> and, um, and so, no, it was uh, it was a, a a joy to make. Anyway, so Peter and I have done the two of those, and we're now working on something that. There is, it's a script that we we're hoping to set up, but it's they're suddenly interested, interest in turning it into a eight-part Netflix series, and sure. we're oh, terrific. You know, sitting here, well, I kind of would prefer to have made it a movie first, sure, and then sure. on to the Netflix. But it would appear the producers that are interested, they want to go straight to Netflix. Okay, okay. The tidal wave is moving us all in a particular <laughs> direction, mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. you know? And what can I say? The powers that be are the people who give you the resources to create your visions, so. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't want to make any sort of influence on it, but I would just suggest maybe reaching out to Ed Harris. This is the time. <laughs> now, now you can put him, get him in on this one, make that happen. <laughs> you know, that's a very good, I, I need to work with it. Because <laughs> Ed was always in my mind. He had just done that, that um, kind of knights in armor on motorcycles. Knight Riders. Mm -hmm. Knight Riders. George, George, George Romero. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. He had just finished that and I so wanted him 
to be anyway. Michael was fine. Michael was Mike. Michael was great, of course. So, but yeah, now's the time. You can still make this happen, universe, Harley. In, a, in another universe, <laughs> in a parallel universe. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much again, Harley. This was honestly, this was incredible. Thank you so much. We are so My appreciative. Pleasure. Good luck and uh, great talking to you. It was great, great talking to you as well. And best of luck with that project. We look forward to it. We can't wait to see it. Uh, and so best of luck with everything. And thanks again. Thank you. Cheers. So that was us talking with Harley Cochlis. Can you Amazing. believe it? Yeah. So fun. So great. So interesting. <laughs> so generous with his time. I mean, he's we're we were in Los Angeles. He's in London. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. and still he was willing to meet with us in his, during his evening time. Oh, I mean, we could, I honestly, I could have talked with him for another oh, hour. Yeah. yeah. Easily. 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 Yeah. Well, we could have talked to him forever, but you know, I mean, he has a life to live <laughs> <laughs> and we do not. And we don't, we don't, <laughs> we were living our lives talking to him. We were living our best lives. <laughs> um, so uh, stay tuned for what Harley's got coming next. I love that he's still uh, he's still out there. I'm excited for this Netflix series. I hope that that all comes together. Um, also, his son Barney that that hooked us up with this whole he's he's a director of his own right. I've seen his uh, website. He's got some uh, really cool stuff on there. So he's going to have some stuff coming up. So maybe we'll eventually be able to talk to him. And of course, he uh, as a kid appeared in Battle Truck. So maybe he, you know, eventually when we get to speak with him about what he's got coming up next, we might be able to talk to him about some of his memories from Battle Truck as well. But that's it for this bonus episode. Uh, please follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Reach out to us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Go watch a Harley Cochlis film tonight. That's what that's that's your homework assignment. <laughs> After listening to this episode, there, there will be a test. Okay, there will be a test. That's right. That's right. Study, study up. Okay, because the dream demon section is going to be extensive. Okay, <laughs> do your homework, and we'll see you next time on the New World Pictures podcast. Bye, everybody.